Some of you might not know this about me, but uh, growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. I remember when I was young, watching these court shows on, on TV, when I was little, watching old reruns of Perry Mason, when my grandparents would come to visit or I'd go visit them. In uh, college, I was addicted to any and every type of criminal justice programming, used to watch hours upon hours of uh, live trial coverage on Court TV. Y'all remember Court TV? Yeah, that was binge-worthy TV right there. I just, I just loved it. And, and for those of you who are like me, or for our lawyers in here, Brett Brewer, um, you know that uh, during a, a trial, to find a person guilty in a court of law, or even to go to trial, for that matter, you have to have quite a bit of what is called direct evidence. Direct evidence is, is real, tangible, clear evidence that a crime has in fact occurred. And many of you know who have watched shows like Dateline and, and American Justice that if you have large amounts of indisputable evidence, clear evidence of a crime, chances are good that the prosecution is going to win. Now, I know that doesn't always happen, but a lot of the time it does. And of all the damaging types of, of evidence given in a court case, few are more convincing to the jury and more damaging to the defense than expert statements and eyewitness testimonies, especially if there are more than one. For example, if in a case... The prosecution calls for a couple of testimonies from forensic experts, and on top of that, they have two, maybe even three or more eyewitnesses saying the same thing. They have a solid chance of winning. And you're probably wondering, where on earth are you going with this? Well, I'll tell you. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are taking a break once again. It feels like I'm saying that a lot. Taking a break once again from our uh, sermon series in Acts, and I assure you, those of y'all who have given me a hard time about getting through Acts, we're going to be right back in Acts after this month, okay? And we're going to hit it hard and heavy, and I'm going to try to finish the book this year, at the end of this year, okay? So I know we're two years in, but if you're going to be stuck in a book, that's a good book to be stuck in, right? All right, but for this month, because at the end of this month is uh, Resurrection Sunday, it falls on the last Sunday in March, for the, for the entire month, we're going to be doing a study through one of the greatest chapters on the resurrection in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, in a sermon series I've entitled, Jesus' Resurrection and Ours. Okay? So, so for the next four Sundays, we are going to study through this great chapter, and we're going to be talking about the evidence for and the importance of Christ's resurrection and what that means for us today. Today and next week, we're going to be looking at Christ's resurrection, and today we're going to discuss the evidence for Jesus' resurrection in verses 1 through 11. Next week, we're going to be talking about the importance of his resurrection, why it matters that Christ has been raised, and then we're going to talk about what Christ's resurrection means for us and why that should be the source of all our joy as believers. But before we get there, let's begin 
by looking at verses 1 through 11. In this passage, Paul provides as solid a defense as you're going to find for the doctrine of the resurrection. He is going to make a defense on solid grounds, direct grounds, using direct evidence that this event, the resurrection, has in fact occurred. Now, before we get into this text, there is a crucial contextual question that we must ask here, and that's why. Why resurrection? Why does Paul spend all of 1 Corinthians 15 on giving a defense for and explaining the importance of the resurrection? I mean, this is not a gospel book. It's not. It's it's a letter to the church at Corinth. So why does Paul spend so much time talking about Christ's resurrection and ours? Well, let me try to bring you up to speed, seeing how we're jumping in to this at the end of this book. One thing you learn pretty quickly when you study through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians is that the Christians at Corinth were a mess. They were one messy, messed up church. All right? Should give us a little bit of comfort knowing Paul planted this church and they had all the problems that they had. Literally, chapter after chapter, Paul is addressing one issue after another. And chapter 15 is no different. The Corinthians were having issues on top of all the other issues they were having. They were having issues when it came to the doctrine of the resurrection. Not Jesus's bodily resurrection, they believed in that, but the bodily resurrection of everyone else. And the reason why is because the Christians at Corinth were bad about allowing the outside unbelieving world to influence the goings-on in the church. And that happens to us today, doesn't it? Sure does. They were constantly mirroring the practices of the pagans and adopting the teachings of worldly philosophers. They were constantly dragging in these ungodly, worldly influences on into the church. And apparently, there were a group of believers who had also adopted the teachings from the Greek scholars that said there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection. Now, hang with me for just a minute while I explain this. This is really going to help you going forward, understanding uh, where Paul's going with this, all right? There was a teaching in this day that came out of Greek philosophy called philosophical dualism. And I can feel your eyes getting heavy when I say that word. But but let me explain this because this will really help clear some things up. This is what many of the Greeks believe. They, They taught this teaching that matter is evil. All material things are evil and everything spiritual is good. They taught, therefore, that one's body, our physical body, is evil, but one's spiritual self is good. And because this was their worldview, they believed that when one died, their evil material body went away, just decayed, and it was gone, while their good, clean spirit Remain. Now, that's a very simple definition of that concept. There's more to it than that, but you get the point. That's what you need to know to move forward. And the Corinthians had been greatly influenced by this pagan belief, and they too 
We're questioning the bodily resurrection. So in chapter 15, Paul, knowing this is where they are doctrinally, makes a detailed and thorough argument in favor of the physical and bodily resurrection of Christ and of his people. And in this passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul is building his argument in favor of the future bodily resurrection of the godly. And he does so by giving evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Now, another question we need to ask here is why does he do that? Why does he do that? I mean, they already believe this to be true about Jesus. They just doubted their own resurrection. So why hammer home this point they already believed in? Well, here's why. Because Paul knew if they would consider the evidence for Jesus' physical and bodily resurrection, and if they would understand the importance of it, the significance of it, then they would begin to see the likelihood of their own. That's why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Look at it with me. We'll be there next week. But he says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? See, Paul is trying to show his readers that there is this seamless connection between the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of believers on the last day. That's why in verses 1 through 11, Paul opens this argument by laying out this direct evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And this is a great passage for us to be in this time of year because we're approaching Resurrection Sunday. And it's also just a wonderful passage for us as believers because it reminds us believers of the fact that our faith is reasonable. Our faith is a reasonable, defendable faith, especially when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection. So let's take some time this morning to examine Paul's evidence for Jesus' resurrection. First, he says this. Evidence number one, you have the testimony of the church. Look at verses one and two. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Here Paul is calling for the Christians at Corinth to remember the message he first preached to them when he was with them. And it's kind of cool we're going through Acts because just a few weeks ago we were with Paul in Corinth, right? So Paul's about five years removed from that and he's calling for them to remember when he was with them and what he taught them when he was with them. He's, he's asking them, he's calling upon them to remember that message he preached to them, that message they responded to, and that message they were still responding to when Paul was writing the letter. He says, when I was first with you, you took your first step of faith, and you are still living by faith to this day. That's what he means when he says being saved. Now, we don't often talk in that way, do we? Talk about being saved, a present salvation. We talk about the fact that we have been saved, but what does he mean when he says being saved? Paul's talking about their growth in godliness. He's talking about their sanctification, which, by the way, is a part of salvation. Did y'all know that? That's why Paul says being saved. God's people are not just those who 
trusted in Christ at one time, but God's people are those people who are trusting in Christ and following him and growing in godliness. Many people, they, they argue that you can, you can be saved in the past, but you may or may not grow in godliness at all. That's not what scripture teaches at all. Scripture teaches we have been saved. Scripture teaches God's people are being saved and Jesus said will be saved. So there's a future salvation as well. That's our glorification, okay? And those who have been saved will be saved and and are being saved and will be saved, okay? All right, so that's what he's talking about here. And he says that to make the point that their continued belief in Christ, their continued pursuit of godliness, their continued desire to be like Jesus is proof of the risen Lord. He says the fact that you were saved and the fact that you're persevering in the faith is proof positive that Jesus lives. He says your resurrected life your transformed life, the fact that you're being transformed, you're progressing, you're growing in godliness is proof that Christ has, in fact, been raised. He says, you are a living testimony to the power of the resurrection because at one time, you were living for yourself. You were living a life apart from and opposed to God and his ways. But there came a time when your hearts were open to the person and work of Christ. And you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. And when you did that, the old you died. And the new you was born, that transformed you, and lives to this very day. And that is proof that Jesus lives. Believers, we don't often think about this, but get this. God tells us in his word that our existence... The lives that we live for Christ give strong evidence for the resurrection. Do you realize that? That was true of the Corinthians 20 years after the resurrection and is especially true of us today, believers, 2,000 years after. If you're here this morning and you've been saved, if at one time you took a stand for Christ and you're currently standing for him today, if you at one time placed your faith in the Lord Jesus and are living by faith, on a daily basis, if you're here and Christ is living in and through you, that is proof that Jesus lives. It is. Now, some hear that and they'll respond, okay, what about those who are not? What about those who at one time prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, but have never made any strides spiritually? What about those who are no closer to Jesus today than when they first made a decision? Is that then proof that Christ is not alive and that he's not Lord? That's a good question to ask, right? And Paul answers that question for us in verse 2. Look at it. If, Paul says, you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Notice at the end of verse 2, this is so important. Paul explains here it's possible to believe in vain. This is what some call counterfeit faith. Paul explains to us that there are some who have superficial counterfeit faith, the faith of demons, because remember, even they believe, but they are not saved. Now, some don't like to talk about this. This concerns certain people, but listen, you can't get away from it in Scripture. Paul says in Colossians 1.22, He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. 
I mean, is Paul talking about working for our salvation here? No. He's making the point that continuing in the faith is evidence of real, genuine conversion. In other words, one who is saved lives for the Lord and grows in godliness. Now, do they do this perfectly? Of course not. None of us do. But Scripture is very clear that God's people are those types of people who keep trusting, keep following, keep pursuing godliness. Followers of Christ, by definition, do what? Follow Christ. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus said this, John 8, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciple, my real and genuine disciple. So Paul is making the point here. That if you do not persevere, if you're no more like Jesus today than when you first prayed a prayer or walked an aisle, that doesn't disprove the resurrection. That simply proves that your faith may not be genuine. So if you're here this morning, you're no more mature than when you first made a decision for the Lord 10 to 20 years ago. You don't need to be questioning the resurrection. And in fact, if you're questioning the resurrection, that should be a red flag. That you're not trusting in Christ. But the question is whether or not you're right with God. That's why Paul gives us this warning here at the end of verse 2, and that's why we have these warnings all throughout Scripture, folks. So his point in this passage is this. If your faith is saving faith, then you will persevere. And if you persevere and grow in godliness, that is proof of Jesus' resurrection. In church, there is a simple application to be made by us today, and it's this. If a life lived for Christ, if a life lived for For the glory of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is proof of Jesus' resurrection. Then live in such a way to show forth that truth. I know I've shared this with you before, and I'm sure I'm going to share it with you time and time again, because it is a continual prayer I have for us as a church. My prayer is that as the unbelieving and watching world examines our lives, they would conclude that Christ must be alive and he must be Lord because look at Fellowship Bible Church. There's your evidence. Live in such a way to prove that Christ is Lord. Well, Paul continues by giving more evidence for the resurrection. Not only does he give us the testimony of the church, but also the testimony of Scripture. Look at verses 3 through 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Underlined in accordance with the Scriptures there. It occurs twice. He's, He's emphasizing something, isn't he? when it's mentioned more than once. In these verses, Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth of the gospel that he preached to them when he was with them, that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day. This is the message that they received. This is the message they believed. This is the message they were still standing firm on. Paul says, I delivered this message to you of first importance. It was a priority when I was with you. Why? Why was this a priority? Because these truths, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they're they're the heart of the gospel. And folks, the gospel is the central message of the Bible. So get this, if you omit or if you explain away any of those truths, 
you have struck the gospel at the heart and you've struck the scriptures at its core. Very, very important. Now, did this message originate with Paul? Did it start with him, this gospel message? No, he said, I also received it. From who? From God. Where? From his word. Twice, Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. And some will read that and they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the New Testament writers wrote about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the gospels and things like that. Well, get this. Paul's not talking about the New Testament here. You know how I know that? Because this epistle, though it appears uh, midway through the New Testament, was one of the earliest epistles written and probably predated all four Gospels. So Paul didn't have a New Testament at this time to appeal to. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about what the writers from the Old Testament were pointing toward. They were pointing toward Jesus' death and resurrection as it's prophesied in the Old Testament. That's what he's referring to. Listen, you want proof that Jesus' death and resurrection were, were legit and significant? How about reading about it 400 years before it ever even happened? You want to know the significance of Jesus' death? You want to know the importance of, of Christ being the Messiah? Read about what Isaiah had to say about it hundreds of years before Christ's earthly ministry. Read Isaiah 53 where he says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, folks, the sins of us all. Now, folks, this is not just a shot in the dark here for Isaiah. I hope you see that, that he just happens to get this right. No. The Old Testament is filled with fulfilled messianic prophecies. You have prophets all over the Old Testament prophesying about Jesus' birth and also about his death and resurrection hundreds of years before these events went down. That's some strong evidence, isn't it? And we've been talking about in the book of Acts that when Paul went to the synagogues, he appealed to this evidence, to the evidence of Scripture. When he went into the synagogues, many of the Jews, especially around Jerusalem, they knew of Jesus. So Paul talked about what they knew about him and had heard about him, and then guess what he did? He opened up their Scriptures in the Old Testament, and he showed them. Luke says he proved to them that Jesus is the Christ. That all that he claimed to be was, was said in the Old Testament. And all that he accomplished was, was mentioned there as well. He opened up the scriptures and he showed them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the one God sent to save, the fulfillment of all that was promised in the scripture. So you have the testimony of the church. You have the testimony of scripture. Paul also appeals to, number three, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, this is huge. This is huge. Verses 5 through 7. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Like I said at the beginning, during a trial in a court of law, there is nothing more convincing to the jury and more damaging to the defense 
than eyewitness testimonies, especially if you have more than one and they're credible and they're all saying the exact same thing. In this passage, get this, Paul appeals to not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, hundreds, hundreds of, of eyewitnesses. And, and he mentions several by name. At the beginning of verse 5, Paul says he appeared to Cephas. Now that's another name for Peter. He's talking about Peter here. He appeared to Peter. Think about Peter for a moment. In the hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Peter was having a tough time, wasn't he? We're told in Scripture that he denied Christ three times. Now, you would think, having ended his life with Jesus in this tragic way, our Lord may have just skipped over Peter and appeared to and commissioned someone else. How amazing, then, is it that he appeared to Peter? The one who denied him. The one who denied him with an oath. The one who denied him angrily. Peter would not have been a good candidate to trump up a resurrection myth. Would you agree with me on that? Are you telling me that the same Peter, that when the going got tough, he denied Christ and left him, would then go on to give his life for Christ, being crucified upside down for a lie he fabricated? That's just not likely, folks. Paul says, then he appeared to the twelve. Now, there are only ten present during that first appearance Christ made to his disciples, we, we, uh, to them as a group. We know in uh, John 20, Thomas was absent and Judas was out of the picture for good. But when Paul says the 12, he's not giving an inaccurate report here. That was another name, sort of a nickname for Jesus' disciples. They were referred to as the 12. And technically, Jesus did eventually appear, appear to 12 because he made a special appearance to Thomas. We read about that at the beginning of the service. And he also appeared to Matthias, who replaced Judas. In verse 6, Paul makes another amazing statement. He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now that's amazing. Can you imagine if during a trial, the prosecution had eyewitnesses lined up out the door, down the street a few times, eyewitnesses all saying the exact same thing. My, my guess is the jury wouldn't take very long, right? They would say, we get it. He or she is, is, is guilty. I mean, that's just an overwhelming amount of evidence. And Paul gives that kind of evidence here. And notice he says, most of whom are still alive. That, of course, is not unlikely seeing how this event just happened 20 years after the resurrection. This, this letter was just written 20 years after. You know, a dead eyewitness doesn't do you much good, does it? Times during those courtroom dramas, you have corrupt people trying to kill off the eyewitnesses because they know how damaging their testimony can be. Paul says here, you got hundreds of eyewitnesses alive and well, and you go ask them. They'll tell you the exact same thing, and many of them lived till the latter half of the first century. John was one of them. He was one of the youngest of the disciples. So you have vocal eyewitnesses all throughout the first century sharing their stories. And I've, I've said this before, but it's just cool to think about. Can you imagine living in this time period and hearing their testimony? It would have been incredible. I would have wanted to uh, friend some of those people. I'd want to be in their small group, right? 
talking about the gospel account, you say, hey, so-and-so, you were there. Can you tell us what happened? You know, give us some more details here. Fill in the blanks. How cool would that have been? Well, Paul continues in verse 7 by mentioning the fact that on top of Jesus making all these appearances, he also appeared to James. And he doesn't specify which James here, but I don't believe he has to. I think he's talking about the brother of Jesus. The brother who, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told didn't even believe his brother was who he claimed to be. The brother who, in Mark 3, tried to restrain Jesus because he thought he was crazy. James... Like Peter would have been another unlikely candidate to fabricate a resurrection. He was a cynic and a skeptic, yet Jesus appeared to James. And he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he later referred to himself in James chapter 1, verse 1, as James, a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a transformation. So Paul mentions two unlikely witnesses in verses 5 through 7 and hundreds of other eyewitnesses and he ends this this section this passage by mentioning one more unlikely witness which leads to our fourth and final piece of evidence for Jesus's resurrection it's the testimony of the apostle Paul look at verses 8 and 9 Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here Paul gives one more unlikely witness himself. You have Peter, the denier, James, the unbeliever, and Paul, the persecutor. Again, if you were going to trump up a resurrection myth, this is an unlikely bunch, right? to do that and Paul is is by far the least likely of any he hated Christ and wanted to see any and every one of his followers suffer and he knew that about himself looking back that's why he said I am the least of the apostles in verse 8 he refers to himself as one untimely born now this is an extremely harsh way to refer to yourself he's basically saying I am the abortion I am the abortion. That's the way he's referring to himself. He was the, the least likely. He viewed himself in that way because he persecuted the church. But look at verse 10. What a great word to follow. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, I was a dead and vile and worthless person before Christ. I was a persecutor of the church, but though that's the case, Jesus also appeared to me and he saved me and he made me his apostle. And now, Paul says, with the zeal I used to have when I persecuted God's people, I now labor with a reckless passion and an unmatched zeal for the cause of Christ. And he says the only one who deserves all the credit is God alone. He says, by God's grace, I am 
what I am. And this is a continuing theme with Paul. Whenever he is boasting on the ministry, he always directs all the praise toward the one bringing the increase, God himself. When he's talking about the transformation that's taking place in his life and that has taken place in his life, Paul always gives credit to the one who is doing that work and has done that work in and through him, God alone. And it's important for us to realize this as well. Believers, by God's grace, you are who you are. And I am who I am as well. May we never forget that. May we give all the glory and the honor and the praise for where we are and the way God's using us to God. He deserves it all. Paul understood this. He concludes in verse 11 by saying, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul's just giving a brief recap here of uh, what he said in this passage. He says, whether it's my testimony or the testimony of other eyewitnesses, this is our message. This is the message we preach, the resurrection of Christ. And this is the message that you believe. And again, in the upcoming passages, Paul is going to build upon the foundation he has laid here to show the Christians in Corinth, once again, this seamless connection between the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of all believers. Well, to close out this morning, let me say this. We've been reminded, once again, in this passage that we've looked at this morning that God is in the business of taking those who deny him, those who are cynical and skeptical of him, and even those who are adamantly opposed to him and transforming them and using them for their joy and for his own glory. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, God could never do anything with me. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're thinking, Graham, you just don't know. You don't know my history. You don't know how sinful I am. You don't know all the awful things that I've done. You're right, I don't, but get this. I know this. I know the God I serve. The God of the Bible delights in taking a broken down, fallen, and disgusting life. And he delights in taking that life and restoring it and redeeming it and using that life for that person's joy and for his own glory. Folks, God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. He can take you, he can transform you, he can renew you, he can restore you, he can use you for his glory purposes. God takes those who turn away from him, don't believe in him, and those who are set against him, and he redeems those types of people for himself. This is what God delights in doing, and he can do that for you. If you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, too terrible. Too terrible. I've done too many horrible things. There's no way God could forever forgive me. There's no way he could ever forgive me and use me. I want you to hear this, and I know this to be true from the word of God. You are exactly the person God delights in using. If you, like Peter, like James, like Paul, and like so many others, would turn from your sinfulness and and see your need of a savior and if you would confess that sin and turn from that sin forsake that sin and give over the reins of your life up and over to the lord jesus 
and trust in him alone for your salvation, you, like Peter, like James, like Paul, and like so many others after them, can be saved and be changed forever. If you've never made that decision, if you've never given your life up and over to Jesus, I invite you to do so right here, right now, today. Let's pray.